Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I am choosing to foster feelings of reckless optimism. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I am focusing on my locus of control. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturdays discussing education research and drinking beer. Today, we are drinking Dragon's Milk Solera, a fooder-aged ale from the New Holland Brewing Company. Is that how you say that? It's not how I would have guessed it. When responding to my request for comments, Aaron Matthew wrote, a fooder, parentheses, pronounced capital F, capital O, capital O, capital D, lowercase er, end parentheses, is basically a Perfect. really large barrel. That- Hat tip, Mr. Matthew, for doing your job and doing it well. Yeah, he absolutely, absolutely uh, is reliable. He's an excellent advisor for our viewers. Cheers, that's fantastic. Here we go. So what are we going to do today, Mr. Ralph? The routines, rewards, and incentives we use in the classroom can help students build productive habits they use throughout their lives. We read about a series of studies that found how rewarding cognitive effort can lead to greater intrinsic motivations for participants, even after the rewards. We think about how this could apply in classrooms. Later, we discuss a recent report promoting research on the positive impacts of professional learning. How can we get the most from our time and energy in PD? Let's get started. For our first segment, we read, Rewarding Cognitive Effort Increases the Intrinsic Value of Mental Labor. This was written by Georgia Clay, Christopher Mlinski, Francisca Korb, Thomas Goschk, and Veronica Job. This was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2022. I cued this paper because I knew you'd love it and I knew I'd love it. The connection between cognitive effort, which is the um, putting thoughtful intention into thinking hard, uh, trying to process difficult problems or trying to connect disparate ideas, um, but just doing the work of thinking about things is something that you and I both um, really are trying to be intentional about in our classrooms uh, and facilitating for students, helping them understand the value thereof and helping them do it more effectively. And so seeing a study that connected that to the intrinsic motivation uh, was really exciting to me. And so I queued this like right around the time that it came out and we finally got into it in our queue. And so I was pumped. I was pumped to be able to get into this one. Uh, as I got into it, it felt really salient to me as I'm currently working with some, uh, I, I've got a class of avid kids. We are working on building the discipline for academic habits that will not just get them to college, but get them a degree through college, helping create systems that promote those habits in my kids is something that's really, really professionally salient to me. So the to start things off, we even need to reference one of the things that I've already said once, uh, which is that we've got to do the hard work of thinking because this paper opened by kind of challenging the idea that Thinking is something that people don't want to do. That's kind of a prevalent narrative in psychology, in, in neuroscience and cognitive sciences, is that it is it is good to use system two, if I'm going to use the vocabulary from thinking fast and slow, the more thoughtful, more deliberate, prefrontal cortex focused kind of thinking 
it's how we solve complicated problems. It's how we make thoughtful decisions, but we avoid doing it is kind of an overriding narrative out there in the world because it takes more energy. Um, we often are de-incentivized for taking the time required to do that kind of thinking. And the authors wanted to challenge that narrative and say, um, is, is that always the case? Or are there scenarios where people are choosing to uh, engage in some of that more more heavy thinking, and they they reference uh, some some examples from real life that I I thought was amusing. There was, they reference like why do why do daily crossword puzzles exist? Or they didn't put it in the paper, but I'm like, why is Wordle a thing that like blew up the world a couple of weeks ago, or it was probably a couple of months ago now? Like everybody's so excited to do Wordle, but it's that's a hard thing to do, and we're all choosing to do it for basically no reason. Uh, so why, why, why is that choice being made if people avoid thinking hard? I remember reading in Fast and Slow that the standard operating procedure is that your brain choose, wishes to operate in a lazy fashion. So you really have to push it hard to get it into the like, we're going to analytically think about that. But that's not always the case. We sometimes do that for fun. We sometimes do it for fun. And so the question is, what does it mean that we're doing it for fun, right? Like, like we're playing chess and we're staring at the board and we're imagining all these opportunities and trying to keep track of the different probability trees and what's going to happen when I decide to commit to moving one of these pieces. And people will do that for hours. They will sit and play one chess game for four hours uh, imagining all these complicated things. That's a lot of cognitive labor, but for those people, they are doing it for fun. So how does that happen? One of the things that they mentioned at the beginning of this paper is that animals will continue uh, behaviors and habits after the external rewards that initiated those behaviors have been removed. And to me, that was the that's the heart of this entire paper. And I love it. I love it. And I think we could even go back to your your reference to things like playing chess, where you and I, even after we're done recording this show, very often play games that require a considerable amount of cognitive effort. And it, I think you can trace back to in many of those stories, what were your early experiences playing those games or doing those sorts of tasks? You know, I, I started playing Wordle. I avoided it in the initial, you know, discussion out there in the world. And then my wife was playing it and we had an exchange about it. I was like, oh, well, if I play this, I can have build a relationship with my wife. Boom. I've played it every day since then. Uh, or, you know, when did you start playing chess? Well, I, I fondly remember playing this with a parent or I fondly remember being taught by by a friend of mine or, you know, I had this really compelling experience with an excellent game that I want to talk about early on. And so then you're like, I love this. Yes. And then you just want to keep doing it and keep doing it. And so what's that phenomenon where um, the extrinsic rewards seed this longer duration passion or this longer duration interest in something because the the authors even point out there we know that e extrinsic motivations can also destroy motivate destroy intrinsic motivation so if we're always compensating for something that somebody has a passion for that that reward can actually undermine their passion originally and so how do we navigate this recognition that sometimes outside rewards can seed an intrinsic motivation that persists after the reward goes away while also recognizing it's possible that rewards can also undermine motivation. Like where's the balance? How does that work? 
in their experiments, they actually did one, two, three, four, five, six versions of the same experiment. And in the first version, they used actual like physiological heart rate data to like measure the like effort of the individual. And I thought that that was very interesting. That's so cool. And then they kind of took that restriction, they removed that measurement for the following uh, uh, co- sort of confirming or consistency experiments that they did. But in all of them, uh, individuals were given um, a m- nominal monetary value for putting forth effort during puzzles. They were not paid for their accomplishments of the puzzles. They were paid for their effort during the like working memory uh, testing activity that yeah, they were like doing. five cents 60 cents yeah 25 cents yeah like really small really small so nobody was going to retire based on how they did on these tests so they but they did pay them for for their effort as measured physiologically because there are a few details about how they actually structured the payments that i think were really important to their findings um number one they they didn't pay everybody for their efforts so in, in one of the groups, they paid them randomly, different amounts, and they just randomly allocated those amounts. And in the other group, especially in that physiological condition where they're measuring specific patterns in people's heart rates and associating it with cognitive effort, which I just, I cannot explain to you. I, that was so cool. I just, I was, the biologist in me nerded out on that. Um, but they looked at that and then they gave them a monetary reward based on how much effort they saw in their hearts, which is neat, but they didn't tell them that. They didn't tell the participants that was what that was that was how they were deciding on the rewards. And so I think that the fact that it was a secret and not an overt, you did good effort, here's good effort money. They just saw it and then gave them some money in response to that effort, I think is an important distinction. And what they found is in a subsequent round of puzzles where they were told you will not be compensated, they also gave them the options about wh- how difficult the task they wished to engage. And those that had been compensated for their effort unknowingly chose higher cognitive difficulty tasks compared to those that did not. This was really consistent with my um, perspective that, you know, we want to myelinate the I, w- I want to encourage my kids to myelinate successful study habits, discipline, patterns of productivity. Um, and so how, how can I encourage that in them so that they have those habits when they're outside of my realm of in- influence? One of the fundamental elements of your approach to organizing your classroom is getting students bought in to the process like, like that's item number one. That's yes. so important. Get them bought in to what we're doing. And I think that you are basically doing what this experiment has explicitly measured, which is help them see what it takes to engage in productive cognitive effort. And then you are reinforcing that through your social connections, through the, the ways that you provide follow-up experiences for the students. And those things are kind of serving the same function of of these rewards of this feedback. So then they can start to see the loop on their, on their own. Right. So that I'm engaged in high cognitive effort work and the results of that work are sufficiently visible that it provides my own reward of, yeah, I did the high cognitive effort and I see the reward. I didn't put in the cognitive effort. I'm not seeing the reward. My paper is still pretty blank. My paper still hasn't shown much change, 
I am unrewarded. And so you're basically building that exact feedback loop. And then it, it produces these stories of students going off to university, coming back two years later. And they're like, I still do retrieval practice for my introductory biology course. And you're like, of course you do, because you've, you've built this intrinsic motivation in that, in that window of what the, the experimenters call the learning period, right? They learn this feedback loop. Uh, and I think, hearing you say that to me makes me um, want to underline the importance of the mandatory mastery model and how I'm grading. If their options for performance are 50 in the grade book or a 100 in the grade book, it makes it very black and white what that effort threshold is for success. Like, we're not going to get by with an 82. We kind of have the gist of this science, but there's actually a good chunk that I don't understand how it fits and, I, and I'm missing and it's fine and we're going to keep going with that. No, I have to go back and fill in those blanks and continue with this cognitive effort process until I get that reward. And then once they have understood that and internalized that and it's become a habit, they'll continue to do that even in classes that don't have that reward structure. There's another um, piece that I think comes out of the statistics that they did because I'm a stats nerd. And the study number one that had the really cool biology measurements. Yeah. And so they were able to directly connect the rewards to cognitive effort like at a, with a, based on biological data. That's cool. I just take them at their word. I don't know anything about that, but I think it's cool and I assume that they're, it's true. The, and then all the other studies were online. And so, as you mentioned in your breakdown, they, they didn't have the measurement of the participants' cognitive effort. And so they just based rewards on the difficulty of the task, which they knew was closely tied to cognitive effort based on their results from the first study. So it's a, it was an okay proxy, but it was a proxy. And it doesn't match perfectly to users' experience. And I think that that matters because in their results, from those follow-on studies, not all of them got the findings from the first study. Some of them failed to show a difference, and some of them only barely showed a difference. And the last one that had a really big sample size managed to get a difference. And so then when they they you know they meta-analyzed all of their studies, looking at I assume weighting the one that was the biggest heavily because that's typical in meta-analysis. Although it is an assumption, I didn't read their supplementary materials. The it came out to be a significant difference, and I think that it's real. But the point is when it was more loosely coupled with cognitive effort, you saw a weakening of the impact. And so I think that's important to recognize that as, as we're designing the experiences that our students will navigate, continue to monitor how well the connections are between your designs and the actual cognitive effort being put in. Because if, we're using proxies and I'm assuming that we're all going to use proxies that we're going to miss. And as those decouplings happen, you're going to lose the impact or you're going to at least weaken the impact. And so giving, giving each of ourselves permission to make adjustments. When I see somebody who's doing the right stuff based on my experience in the classroom, I see that they're working hard and they're on it. And, and the system we've created for whatever reason is not connecting them with whatever the incentive is for whatever reason. I think it's important to give ourselves permission to just fix it just in the moment, just, just make it right 
so that the incentive does align with their cognitive effort. Because when it starts to misalign, which they saw in their follow-up studies, you're going to start to lose the impact. And so it's just really, really critically important that we can like continue to monitor how well connected the feedback systems are to the actual cognitive effort and not imperfect proxies. There are so many kinds of rewards in classrooms that managing the reward structure of a classroom is hard. And if I'm being honest with myself, I think it might be my favorite thing to do in education. Like it, it, I really like thinking about that. And I have for a long time, like why, like, should we assign points? Should we, should we do ungrading? Should, should, how many points should this be? Should it be due? And what should we like, you know, should we dock, should we dock points or should we just add some paperwork? And so it's laborious. So it's a consequence, but it's not a point consequence. Or should I just, when, when should I give it an explicit compliment? When should I let the behavior and the consequences speak for themselves? Uh, when, which students need which rewards at which time? Because even if you answer all of your prior questions, that doesn't mean the when you give those to those students are the same. Plus it's all happening within a really like soupy social milieu, right? Of like what's everybody as they're learning to be people and as they're finding their place in their social networks. And so like just whether or not I laugh at that joke has implications for how their peers are perceiving them. Like it just, it's it's just, there's so many different feedback forms. And so like the reality of what does it look like to incentivize cognitive effort is actually very, very complicated because like it or not, every teacher is throwing around so many different forms of feedback and incentive. We just are like, we just are. And so what control do we have over that? And what can we do? And what can we not do? And especially over time, like which things matter more in this classroom or for this group of people is, uh, is far from clear cut like it was in this paper. And so like pondering, how do I build an incentive structure that facilitates the learning phase and then lets them go when they're ready to go is far more complicated in a classroom, which I think makes this a challenging and satisfying profession. We have to be mindful of our external motivation systems so that we are rewarding what we want to see. That's the question. Like, what behaviors is your reward system propagating is the question as a practitioner. And few of us can get away with navigating in an ungraded or gradeless system, right? So grades are really kind of a, a, an institutional constraint that we have to use, uh, basically blanket. And so, okay, so we're going to have an external grade motivator. We need to ask ourselves, what behaviors are we encouraging when we give the grades that we give? That's good. So I'm just following right along with you because the, there are a couple other design pieces that I think come with that because one of them that was key in all of their designs that they didn't really make a big deal out of in their study, but I think is critical to the classroom application is that the incentives fell away. Kind of like the initial rocket boosters that fall off as you go up into space. In all of their study designs, they stopped incentivizing it eventually. And I think that's key for avoiding the problem of extrinsic motivations destroying intrinsic motivation. Is we've got this like focus on the extrinsic motivators, the grades or the whatever, as we build the habits and we start to learn how it works. But if in quarter three, 
they're they're engaged in some good quality work. I'm like, ah, that's not quite that's not quite what I wanted. If you want the grade, do this thing. Boom, you you're gonna lose them. So oh, like so letting the grades fall away as they start to understand how it works, I think is a critical component of this design, and it was present in all of their studies. And so I think it's something to remember as you imagine this continuing to mature over the course of a semester or a school year is that the grades fell away. And so if if they're doing it and they're 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 stopping their attention on the grades, let them. Uh, I have a colleague who has made a a uh, a change in her grading practices this second semester. She has told her kids, your semester grade will be whichever is higher, your third quarter grade or your fourth quarter grade. And kids that were on the boat and participating productively in class and were getting, you know, doing the things that they needed to do, uh, who were pretty solid at the end of the third quarter, now have the security that they're going to be pretty solid at the end of the semester. And so whatever habits they've myelinated for that course, they can continue to use uh, toward their growth in that course without having to stress this risk of punishment. And the kids that haven't learned and haven't invested to develop that relationship or those behaviors or that discipline or that, that those, those habits still have incentives to continue to invest in that. Uh, so that's, that's interesting. Empower each other. For our second segment, we read Dispelling the Myths, What the Research Says About Teacher Professional Learning. This was written by Heather Hill, John Pape, and Nathaniel Schwartz. This is a non-peer-reviewed publication that was released by the Research Partnership for, for Professional Learning in February of 2022. Uh, so I queued this paper because we were going to be recording our show soon, and I didn't have anything for the second segment. And I was on social media and saw a researcher promoting this recently released document. And I care about professional learning. It looked like a succinct document that was going to overview um, some research relevant to uh, implementing professional learning. And I was like, cool. So I queued it. Yeah, uh, succinct is right. This is a contender for the lightest read we've done in our 62 episodes. Yeah, so it's really brief. Um, and it overviews what it calls six common myths about uh, professional learning or professional development, if you will, and then makes some comments about each of those things being myths and references some studies about what has been found. I... So this is a public awareness document. This is this is I mean, this is basically I find this kind of to be PR for professional development. Yeah, the so, so let me explain a little more about who Research Partnership for Professional Learning is. Uh, so I dropped that in the show notes because I thought if it's not peer-reviewed, we need to understand who is actually producing the material that we're reading as we strive to better integrate non-peer-reviewed material into this show's schedule. And so uh, this link here is a release talking about the new um, organization, I guess. 
So this is an academic adjacent organization, perhaps. So, you know, they've got the uh, agenda, if you will, to promote professional development. And it turns out, audience, if you're listening, (laughs) that happens to coincide philosophically with our agenda. We're on the same page as this group. So this, so this, uh, this identifies six myths, and I actually, that's kind of where I want to start. One of my pet peeves in life is when people set up these straw men of people say that thing and that thing's wrong. I'm like, okay, who, who said, said that? that thing? Who said that thing? Yeah. Uh, and so, so I was in that place. And their first, their first myth, they do cite somebody who said that thing, and their citation is a TNTP article. Uh, so. Good on you. Like you're you're opening this paper by critiquing one of the supporters in your network. So well done. Yeah, that's a that's a mark in the credibility column. Like I yeah. I must acknowledge that. That first myth, professional learning is a waste of time and money. Really? Like is that a widespread belief that that training professionals is bad? Yeah, how much impact does professional learning have and like from from my experience as a practitioner, I have absolutely walked into some professional learning events where I'm like, I'm not going to learn anything in this. Yeah. I've absolutely had that attitude walking into some of them. And I'm going to tell you, I haven't always been wrong. Uh, so the question is, what professional learning is valuable, I think is a pretty good question. And they cited one of the studies pointing out they were looking at some of the overview studies and they basically found exactly that. Like some stuff works and some stuff doesn't. Uh, but one of the things that I thought was worth taking away was uh, there was a study referencing the impact of having coaches. Yeah. I, I made the same note myself. Yeah. yeah. yeah that um, having, a, a, having access to instructional coaches and or mentors allows novice teachers to be comparable to uh other teachers that have five to 10 years of experience uh, compared to novices that don't have those coaching supports. So mentor up, buddy up, pair up, get experienced teachers in relationships with novice teachers in your building. If you are an experienced teacher in your building, take somebody under your wing. If you're an admin, look for opportunities to pair your experienced teachers with your novices because it's going to light a fire under your novices that's going to support some of those early uh, problems of skill uh, to get them to a place where they are uh, higher achieving in your building, which is probably going to make them feel good and excited about teaching. Myth two. Professional learning is more effective for novice teachers and less effective for experienced teachers. Just like in your classroom, the needs of one student are not the same as the needs of the other student. You, We have to differentiate in our classroom and we have to differentiate for our teachers. So if you give something that is super valuable to a novice teacher and you give the same exact thing to someone who is an experienced teacher, the experienced teacher may not get as much out of it, but that doesn't mean that there aren't things for that experienced teacher to get out there somewhere that they could benefit from if they had that learning experience. So the one size fits all is the problem. When you have an entire staff of 250 teachers in the gym for one presentation that they're all getting without recognizing that every single one of those teachers in that room is in a different place in regard to whatever that topic is. Well, that's just bad instructional practice, no matter what your audience is, whether they be professionals 
or elementary school kids or high school kids or people that you want to teach how to use the deep fat fryers at Wendy's. Like if you got a room of 250 and you're just telling them all the same one thing, that's not great. The And what they specifically call out is some older research that found that the majority of teacher development happens in the first five years. And I thought that was interesting because I had no earthly idea what that research was, but I've absolutely heard that like as a truism in my department and in talking with other teachers, I was told that like, you're not the teacher you're going to be until your third year. You're going to, you're going to be at a place where you're about to like, see who you are by year five. I've heard that. I, I've said that, like, I know that I've said that. So, um, so this, this this paper was calling that out to say some updated research has found that there is continued growth later in the career. And the specific finding was you see a lot of growth from year zero to five. That makes sense. And then you see about half as much growth from year five to 15. So, okay, like teachers keep growing from year five to year 15. And that's not really that's not that's not shattering my world and like Um, having steep learning curves in many things is not unusual yeah so that's that's a fine thing so it justifies we need to keep growing mid-career myth number three professional learning programs must be job embedded and time intensive to be effective clearly ralph and i don't think that professional learning must be job embedded Professional learning requires ongoing dialogue and reflection, which does not have to be within the contract hours of the job. And so while that's true, I admit this is this was the one where I really felt myself tense a little bit because I absolutely um, brought into this paper the belief that if you're not providing it adequate attention, you're wasting everybody's time. I absolutely have some of that sensitivity coming into this one. So if I'm acknowledging my bias, this was one where I was like, I know who says that myth. Me. I say that myth. And so this is one that was definitely on my mind where I was trying to read closely and I was trying to manage my defensive reaction as I was processing it. And uh, one of the things that I thought of really quickly that um, was helpful in me getting to a place of productive dissonance, it was useful reminder that time alone is not adequate. And that was like literally their final, their takeaway in this segment. So when I think about the, so I didn't, I didn't have any problem with the programs must be job embedded myth. I'm like, yeah, that's not true. That's just forget about it. Uh, and time intensive to be effective. So when I thought about time intensive, I, I think I approached it from a different perspective. I think about professional learning, I think a little bit like I do um, fishing. So I'll go to maybe a professional conference that's got three days, you know, and we've got four sessions a day and I go to them and, you know, I may go to them for like, you know, six consecutive years. And when I think back, well, over those six years, how many of those sessions do I remember? And the answer might only be like four, right? Like I remember going to that one session. I remember going to that other session. And I remember going to that other session. And the thing is that, you know, those sessions may have been an hour long. Um, and, but they changed my practice significantly. Because what they did is they lit, they like something in me caught fire. Like this is a problem that I have, or this is something that I I am ineffective, or this is something I'd want to get better at. And this individual or these systems or this research addresses that directly. And I can use it immediately and I can see how I can change my practice and I can see how I can change my classroom. And my classroom makes these paradigm shifts and great strides. And it's really effective and meaningful and powerful. 
But I also went to that conference and went to a bunch of sessions that I do not remember to this day. And I kind of think of that as fishing. You go out onto the lake, you're in your boat, you're in there for six hours. You don't get a bite every five minutes. You're looking. And so the time intensity, it goes back to that differentiation question. It's inappropriate for me to go to every single class on teaching. I have a degree. I have 10 years experience. I've gone to a lot of professional development already. It would be inappropriate for me to go to some of those sessions again. Uh, it, it, some of them I might need refresher, so it would be appropriate. But I can't assume that every minute that I spend is going to give me the same return on investment. I have to keep looking for the rich experiences that I need to improve my practice. And so the time intensity isn't that the moment, like, it's interesting. The time is actually spent on finding what is relevant and actionable for you individually and autonomously as a practitioner. That's where the time is. Myth four, improving teachers' content knowledge is critical to improving their practice. This is the one that's set uncomfortable with me. And, and I think that I prefer to conceptualize it as a threshold effect. You need a certain mastery of knowledge to be a teacher of that content. But then getting thicker into the nitty gritty of details that are not really going to come up in the learning objectives of the students that you have isn't really going to change things. Not that much. So there's diminishing returns on content knowledge. There's diminishing returns on content knowledge. There's amount of content knowledge that is unnegotiable and then diminishing returns. Uh, for example, no, your students are not homogenized. So you have a class of students and you start teaching content, whether it's history or English, literature, science, no matter what it is, you're going to have some kids in your class that have a interest in that topic as a hobby. It may be a small number, maybe a low percentage, but some of those kids are actually going to be quite familiar with the content already. And if you start teaching things that are just wrong and they know it, that is going to undermine you for the rest of the year. There is, there is a certain threshold amount of content knowledge that is absolutely unnegotiably critical to your success as a teacher. So this myth, improving teachers' content knowledge is critical to improving their practice, sat unwell with me because at some degree it is non-negotiable. What I thought was interesting. First off, I thought it was really interesting that the beginning of this section started with one of the studies had a really time intensive professional learning example, like coming not two paragraphs after they pointed out the time intensive professional learning was not um, was not the only matter. consideration. So like that was an interesting that was an interesting adjacency. Um, but the I actually think about this from a provider standpoint. Uh, you and I both teach teach science, and so. I know of many examples where the professional learning being provided for content expertise is being provided by content experts. And at face value, that makes sense, right? If I want to have more biology knowledge, I'm going to be taught by a biologist. And I've had many of those experiences and loved most of them, right? Like they're great. But I also recognize from a provider standpoint, there are a lot of science content experts who do not have pedagogy training. Right. The key is that it's not alone. It is not enough. And so, so an important question, and the research that they're referencing is about the mixed results or the lack of impact of 
I think they even reference a specific STEM professional learning example of these content focused uh, professional learning examples. And I think that is more a critique of the content design or the disconnect between content expertise and pedagogy expertise than it is about the inadequacy of content expertise as a, like as a, a fundamental construct. It's, a, it's almost to me that the, the myth isn't that improving teachers' content knowledge is critical to improving their practice. The, the problem is that pedagogical knowledge is undervalued especially in the content-focused professional learning realm. Myth five, research-based professional learning programs are unlikely to work at scale or in top context. Yeah, yeah, what, like, really? That's garbage. That's total garbage. Yeah, who says that? Who says that? Uh, first off, I think NSF funders and other researchers are the only people who say that. That's just, I'm just going to put that on the table. I'll probably cut it because I don't want this to come across as confrontational as, like, I want to be in my heart. NS- National Science Foundation? Yeah, like, funders... And academics, I think, are the people who say that. Well, okay, so that's interesting. I, I kind of, uh, I kind of ignored the at scale part of this and concentrated on the in context part of this. What is within my realm of agency, and that's my 120 students in my classroom this year. That's what's in my and uh, and and to be frank, some well developed collegial relationships. Mm-hmm. But between, that's it. That's it. That's what I got. I, so I don't work at scale. So research-based, I don't care if research-based professional learning works at scale. So I just kind of ignored that. I want to know if it works within the context of me as a practitioner in my classroom. And the grand irony of that, so that's fair. And they even specifically describe a narrative of, you know, like an administrator making decisions about professional learning. And they're like, oh, that's all well and good over there. And, you know, on rail side, but here, does it work for us? Like, how does our community compare to rail side? Like, how does that fit into our context? And the, I struggled with that because I struggled to imagine that as a real scenario playing out in an administrator's office. Like I've just seen too many professional development programs get bought where like we should be so lucky that they're looking at research, examining specific professional learning materials and being like, mm, you know what? Their P values are all like 0.04. That's not going to replicate. I'm going to choose a different one. Like I just, that feels like how often does that actually happen? Uh, you have struck a nerve in me right now as my district is in a hiring freeze and actually negotiating layoffs. And I'm thinking about, well, do we need student conductor product? Do we need the Synergy product? Do we need the Mastery Connect product? Do we need the um, the e-hall pass product? Like how do we, do we need the Zoom uh, contract? Like how many tech product and subscriptions has our district purchased in the last year that are just straight up less effective than teacher-student ratio, period, hands down, end of discussion. I I usually don't do this, but Olathe School District, I am calling you out right now. Ditch the fad digital interfacing garbage and buy more teachers. If you want scale, buy more teachers. And so, so, so I call that out. So there's a whole industry of professional learning that's not research-based at all. 
So like we should be so lucky yeah. that administrators are passing on professional learning because it's not research based enough. Like we should be so lucky. Yeah. Some research some research on professional learning doesn't pan out. And like I know some of those studies. Like I know what that looks like too. And yeah, like sure enough, it doesn't pan out. But some of it does. Turns out that's true without the qualifier. Like some professional learning pans out and some doesn't. Research-based professional learning isn't a panacea. Anybody who thought that should stop thinking that. But we should be so lucky that research-based professional learning even has the gravity that that suggests. Myth six? Mm -hmm. District should implement professional learning programs with no alteration. We've already done this. We've read this paper on our show that, uh, you know, MTSS, uh, when executed, quote, with fidelity, was less effective. Like, if you're going to adopt a program, you need to adapt it to your circumstances, the needs of your students, and the needs of your faculty. There is no one-size-fits-all. There are good ideas. So if it's a good idea, adopt it and make it work in your environment. So I will say this one I liked. And this one I think even taught me some things. Because at face value, you're right, we read, I thought of that same segment. Like, you're right. There, if we were doing the centennial episode, looking back across all studies everywhere, I am sure Jennifer Ng's study would podium. Like, I reference that all the time. What I took from this was like, yeah, fidelity is not the end-all be-all, but the way that they specifically phrased it in the paper was fidelity first. And I was like, hmm? Right. Mm. And and uh, when I looked at it more closely, what their actual recommendation is, I thought that it was really wise and really justified. And it was first, we have to get folks trained on the fundamentals of the the thing, right? The treatment, the the process, the procedure, the product, the whatever. And so that is a question of fidelity. Like, right, this is generally what we're getting at. You figure it out. Like, you're probably already doing it. I hate that phrase. You're probably already doing it. And so that fails to implement some of the fundamentals that produce the impact of that professional learning item. Whereas if we focus on here's what it's really about, here's the core, let's, let's practice. Let's look at what like really means to implement that. Let's perhaps even implement it to a degree that makes you a little bit uncomfortable for the sake of really understanding what it is, perhaps, right? We'll talk about that. And then, okay, you get it. Now adapt it to what makes sense for your context and your systems now that you understand how it works. But that original step of like understand how it works is essential. And I have absolutely seen it get underdone in a number of contexts. Yeah. Uh, I thought about it like cooking a recipe. Like when you're learning to cook, you learn a recipe and you follow the steps and you like get an omelet at the end of it that is a fine edible omelet. And then you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start changing this recipe and I'm going to start cooking this longer. I'm going to cook that shorter and I'm going to add this ingredient. I'm going to fix this up. And now I got something better than I had before. But you can't get to the better you had before until you understood the like construct that you were starting with. So practice the construct until you've got the mastery of the basics and then start experimenting to make it better. This is better with all of you. How was the beer?
I continue to have the least informed opinions of anybody involved with this show, but I will tell you that my experience drinking this ale is exactly my experience drinking other ales that I like. It's sweet. It's got a middle flavor that I struggle to define, and I enjoy it all the way through. So my first impressions were prune or raisin. There's something about prunish or raisin in here. Now that we're at the end of the show, I'm going to say things. It's less acidic, acidic than a stout, which is typical of an ale, but I'm noticing it. I can I can feel that it's less acidic. I would say this is a cooler flavor. Like, I, my, I, I'm not working when I'm drinking it. It's smoother. Fig! Caramel toffee and fig is what they're, they're saying this is. And I didn't get caramel. Although we did talk about sweetness. You said maple, which is... Oh, man, I feel good about myself. Fig. So this is better together. Thank you, Mr. Matthew, for pushing us to improve in the areas of beer drinkership. We appreciate all of you in commenting and making suggestions. If there's something we can read that is significant to you, please continue to share, continue to comment. We're on social media. Check in on twopintplc.com because this is best as a community together. We will see you next month. We want to improve. So as we pursue growth, discuss research, and struggle well.